this point, the children are dismissed to children's church. And turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 3, 6. I keep saying Judges has two introductions and two conclusions, so we are going to do the second introduction today. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 and following. We'll finish up at 3 6. Let's read this. This is God's word. It says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people of Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what is evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity, by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war who had not known it before. These are the nations, 
the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the, the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and revealed to us so that God might be known. Let's pray. Father, we just heard you speak to us, and every word in your scriptures is for our good, to teach us, to correct us, to train us, to rebuke us, to comfort us. And so I pray you would do that this morning. Teach us how to live by faith because we have Jesus as our king. So help us hear your voice to save us from our sin so that we might follow your commandments. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at some point when you are a Christian, you, you come to this painful yet shocking realization. Really more of a question is, why am I still struggling with the same problems? You know, I have Jesus, but I'm still me. God is my Father, I have the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and yet I don't feel like my face is shining like the sun. I'm still plagued by lust, feels like I'm trapped. Uh, I still get angry, it's like you're snared. Um, Our circumstances still, at times, overwhelm us. Or, you know, you think of this way, I still get terrified of what other people think of me, controlled by my fear. Jesus, why do you leave these things to plague me? Why am I not? It seems like I'm not getting better. It's like I'm stuck in a cycle. And so in the fog of war, we start to question ourselves and wonder if I'm really a Christian. (laughs) Why is it so hard, Jesus? Why are there so many various toils, dangers, and snares? And that's where Judges is going to help us this morning. Uh, Some of these things are here to test us. But one of the things I love about this passage is it's so real. We're going to see ourselves in this because it's honest about the human condition. This is life without Jesus. That's what what Judges 2 is, is going to show us. And so in this introduction, this is what's happening is the pattern we just read is going to be repeated with every judge. And so they've just told us, this is the preview. This is the movie trailer, if you will. This is what's about to happen. And then we'll get to get into the nitty-gritty details as we go forward. And so let's look at it. The first thing we learn is in verse 6, and I'm calling the first point gospel amnesia. But this is what plagues people, is we are forgetters. So if you look at verse 6, it says, Joshua dies. This is how we know it's a new introduction because the book started with Joshua and it's picking up again with Joshua died. He he only died once, just to be clear. He's like the rest of us. It's retelling the story. And it says that all those who had seen God work, who lived by faith, who, you know, they weren't perfect by any means, but they had at least seen the works of their God. And another generation arises and they don't know God. 
and they, don't, they haven't seen firsthand with their eyes the powerful redemption and the powerful acts of deliverance that Yahweh had done. And so you have to ask, what does it mean for, for a whole generation to arise and not know Yahweh? What does it mean to not know the Lord? Right? Were they just bad parents? Right? The generation that came before that said, well, I know Deuteronomy 6 says I'm supposed to tell my kids about this great salvation, and they just didn't. Um, did they just forget to tell their kids about Israel being brought up out of Egypt and, and dragged through the wilderness and cared for like a father carries his son? Um, and then forget to talk about Jericho, you know, how the Lord at every moment fought the battles for his people. Were they bad parents? Right. Are these people ignorant? And the key to understanding is, is knowing is a covenant word. It's not that they didn't know about God. It's that they did not know experientially for, their, for themselves the God who saved them. Right? To know is a covenant word. To know the Lord, to know the, your creator, is to be in an intimate relationship with your covenant king. To be bound together where you know him and he knows you. Right. Just so you know how uncomfortable this is, I mean, it's the same language that's used to describe Adam knowing Eve, and then she conceived. It's not that Adam learned all about Eve's and likes and dislikes, and that was enough. No, he, he knew her. There was this intimate knowing to live together with a God who is who has made himself known, and that this generation arose, and they had no experience firsthand that they needed this God to rescue them, even in the promised land. They didn't, they didn't know that they needed their sins to forgive in firsthand by the blood of the Lamb. All right. So they knew about him, but their hearts were not attracted to this God. They heard the good news that Yahweh wants to enter into a covenant relationship. You have the sacrifices. They had the system. But they didn't believe it. All right? And so that's why I'm calling it gospel amnesia but, it, amnesia. but it's just saying this is what human beings are by nature. That from generation to generation, it's no guarantee that the next generation will know the Lord. Because we're forgetters. That remembering is actually an act of spiritual warfare. It's an act of faith to remember who you are and what God has done. To, to know the Lord. This generation has forgotten Yahweh. They've forgotten the gospel, the good news preached to them through their parents. They don't know the lamb. They don't know the one who loved them first the one who fought for them, the one who brought them out of Egypt. How do you deal with that? Right? I mean, for, for Yahweh and the stories of Egypt and the plagues and the red, crossing of the Red Sea and the, you know, the walls of Jericho coming down, they were just stories told by crazy grandpa. Right? Not that central. And for us as Christians, this is... This is life without Jesus, but at the same time, we are prone to forget. I mean, it's, it's asking that question, do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus? Is, is what we're about to do here 
still precious to you to have this? Has Jesus died for your sins? Can you say that? Because we're forgetters by nature. There is a reason Jesus said, proclaim my death until I come by taking the Lord's Supper over and over and over again. The confessing your faith, saying, yeah, I too am still a sinner. I have not arrived yet. It's because we need reminded. It's, it's helping you know the Lord and the one whom he sent, Jesus. And in fact, it's the forgetting that starts the, that starts the whole process of wandering away of, of these problems that still plague us. But I think it's good to pause here and just talk to the kids. I mean, do you hear what this is saying? As you look at your parents, take communion. It's saying it is, it is possible for you to know a lot about Jesus, but know nothing about him personally. Right? You can say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but you say, Jesus died on the cross for me. I mean, this, this passage makes clear that revival has to take place in every generation, from parents to son, and it's dependent on, on the kids to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, but it's also dependent on the parents to work together to make these things known, but ultimately it's dependent on the Lord, the Spirit, opening their eyes to see it. This is why we do what we do with the kids every week. <laughs> We're being catechized as we catechize the kid, the kids, because we need to remember. <laughs> but it's also connected for us. If you go to 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter takes the same idea. He says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brother affection, brotherly affection and, and brotherly affection with love. And whoever's not changing, whoever lacks these qualities, you're blind. You're so nearsighted, you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. And so you want to ask that question, why does it feel like I'm not changing? Part of God's solution is to say, do you know me? Do you know what I've done? Peter ends that same letter by saying, grow in the grace and the knowledge, the knowing of the Lord and our Savior. So, gospel amnesia is where this generation starts. They, they don't know the Lord. And then it's going to get ugly. Because the next you see the downward spiral, and really what you're seeing is the power of sin, even in God's people, right? I mean, a lot of the stories, it's really easy to look at and blast the wicked nations, but the, 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 the Bible spends a lot of time looking inward because judgment comes first to the household of faith. And this, you get a cycle. If you, I, I printed it for you in the bulletin. It's pretty famous. Some people have called it the cycle of repentance. I would just call it the cycle of unbelief. I think that's more accurate. And why this is helpful for you and for me, if this is the cycle of unbelief and we are still yet sinners, 
That means it's also telling you what went wrong when you wandered astray. This is a way to help you see what we would be like without Jesus. And when we wander, this is, these are some of the patterns we walk in. All right. So, look at the pattern. You can see it in your, your outline. Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord that provokes God to anger. And in jealous anger, the Lord gives Israel up to be enslaved. This is a, a repeat. It's, it's almost like they're going back to Egypt again, willingly. And then the fourth thing, they cry out for help. Not really, they just cry. Let's be honest, they're crying. God is moved to pity by their groaning. Then God raises up a judge who he is with to deliver them. They find rest for a while the judge is alive, but then the judge dies, and it doesn't immediately go back. They don't listen to the judge, and then they do worse. And so the cycle starts again, but it's, so it's going downward. And so you have this pattern over and over again. The, no matter how gracious God is, it hardens their heart as they go further and further away. That's the pattern of the book. And this is, uh, this is what I see in my life in, in some ways. You know, the, the patterns of wandering. Right. Israel, we can go through it again. Israel serves the Baals. We'll talk about them in a minute. Meaning they, they, they lose their first love. They love something other than God. They break the covenant, it uses adultery language, they hoard after other gods, they cheat on God. And because God is a jealous God, he gets angry when his bride abandons him, and then God in anger and just judgment gives Israel up to their lovers, and their lovers turn out to be cruel. Um, whatever you worship, if it is not Jesus, it will crush you. And then Israel cries, not for God, but they just cry because this hurts. And then the good news of this God who is angry, he is a jealous God and wants the love of his people. He's moved to compassion. He hears their cries. He raises up a, de a deliverer, a judge. These judges are God-empowered rescuers. The Lord is with them. I think they are positive. We'll talk about that. God is with the judges like he was with Moses like he was with Joshua. The judge dies, Israel gets worse, they don't change. Every gracious act of deliverance and rescue through a judge pushes them away. And so I, the picture I, I think is really helpful. It's like they're a yo-yo. Right? They're going up and down. It's going up when the judges deliver them, down when they're sinning. But every generation is going downstairs, going down the mountain, away from the Lord who loves them, getting worse. And so here's what you've got to ask is, what is so attractive? I mean, what is wrong with these people if God is so kind? <laughs> really, what's wrong with us? What is seducing them away from the, the Lord who loved them and the Lord who is loving them? And so you have this thing about the Baals and the Ashtaroths. And this is foreign language. I don't think I've ever heard anyone confess their love of Baals or Ashtaroth in my career in ministry. But it says in verse 13, they didn't serve the Lord who loves them and saved them. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so picture it this way. You are a nice Canaanite, or not, I'm sorry, try that again. You are a nice Israelite, 
a follower of Yahweh, at least by, by ethnic race. You move into the neighborhood in Canaan, it's a nice farming community in Gezer, and you know in your head that the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth, and that every nook and cranny of your life is to be lived in relationship with the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. But you do the neighborly thing. You take a gift basket to go meet your Canaanite neighbors. You share some matzah and you start talking about religion. And so you tell your neighbors the story of God smoking Israel's bacon simply because he loves you. My God is mighty. And your Canaanite neighbor says, well, that is good for you. I'm glad that's helpful. Around here, we worship Mr. Baal and Mrs. Ashtaroth. Yahweh sounds great for getting out of trouble, but is he really that helpful in, in, in living a happy, comfortable life? Because Baal is the god of farming, and Mrs. Ashtaroth is the goddess of fertility, and the only way around here you have a life that is fruitful and comfortable, happy, healthy, and wise is if you get their blessing. You'll be miserable without them, and so you do the polite thing. You're a good neighbor. Say, okay, how do I get these guys to bless me? And he says, well, come to our church, and you'll find out. But in order for you to have a good life, we need lots of crops, right? You need to eat. We need Mr. Farming and Mrs. Fertility to hook up and be romantic. But they need convincing. And so when we go to church, I, Canaanite, play the role of Baal, Mr. Farming, and I go to the temple and there's a local prostitute who plays the role of Mrs. Ashtaroth. And our romantic trysts convince and teach our gods to get together and to bless our crops. Come to our church, your life will never be the same. You're starting to hear the language, right? The way the pagan gods work is you have to work really hard to get them to bless you. And God is saying, look at how much I've served you first. You can't manipulate the God of the Bible. He just says live by faith. But you see the tension, don't you? How, how seductive this would be, right? Mr. Israelite, do you want to follow Yahweh who says don't commit adultery and control your desires that will get you in trouble? Or do you want to serve Baal with all of your gladness and your glands, as one commentator put it? Temptation. The seduction of sin. And then you add, you notice Mr. Canaanite has an attractive daughter that would look good with your son, and the downward spiral has begun. It's really hard to be a witness and a light to the nations when you worship their gods and you act just like them. So all that to say, it doesn't take much imagination to see why Israel got in trouble. Nor does it take much imagination to see that we live in a Canaanite culture right? where you cannot be happy unless you give in to your desires and you need to, to, to work your tail off to please Mr. Baal and you have to have Mrs. Ashtaroth on your side to have a, a fulfilling romantic life. <laughs> right? The Canaanites worship success and sex. Right? We're no different. And we get seduced. We get drawn away. Yeah. That's what an idol is, something you love more than the God who made you. And when it starts innocently, wanting a good life, wanting a good thing, wanting God to bless us, wanting to have 
food to feed our children. We want to have a nice home. And five years later, we're, we're overworking. We're working overtime, wondering why our families are strangers. <laughs> you know, or it starts out innocently, I, I want to have someone who loves me and someone to live forever with me, <laughs> to have a good marriage, someone to redeem my existence by spending their whole life with me. And God starts to seem smaller and smaller, and we get drawn away. All right. So, that's what happens. This is what happens to Israel. They live, say, Sunday to, to Friday, because they were set, their Sabbath was on Saturday. They'd go to temple. They didn't have a temple. They'd go to the tabernacle. They'd, they'd say the right words, but they didn't know their Lord. And from, Monday, from the rest of the week, what they would do is worship the Baals. And they would sacrifice the lamb on the altar to Yahweh, but they were also on the side you know, they had a side dish, Mr. Baal and Mrs. Astaroth. And it hurt them. It led to idolatry, which led to oppression. And those same gods that looked attractive, they ended up being enslaved by. And so this is the cycle of unbelief. Do you see that in you? Because this is the lesson. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin, sin holds you in its power by what you are attracted to. And because they get worse and worse, they're telling you that sin is a power that we cannot break on our own without Jesus. Sin is breaking God's law, doing whatever I want, but it's an oppressive power serving things that are not God. And they don't let you go once they get there. There are thorns in you. There's a reason God calls them a snare. I'm not a hunter. I've never made a snare. I've only seen Survivor Man do it. But I know when that rabbit runs into the noose, the only way that rabbit's ever going to be set free before it, it suffocates him is if someone has mercy and cuts the cord and lets him go. That's what we're being taught. Yahweh has to raise up a judge to cut the snare, to set them free, to see if they will yet again see his covenant love and respond with repentance. And in the cycle, they don't respond. <laughs> they get harder. So what do we do? And here's what I want to comfort you with, and this will lead us eventually to the table, is look at point two. If you have this cycle of sin, and I would encourage you to read it and think about it and how it applies to your life, Look at what happens in the middle. I'm calling this unasked for salvation. That's the picture. They don't listen while the judge is alive, and they don't listen after the judge dies. And so as the cycle comes, they get oppressed by another nation, and it's really sad. God was against Israel for harm. He's a wounded lover. And his anger is a faithful anger. He won't leave them alone. He wants to bring them back. And so they, they find themselves back in Egypt, but in the promised land. But verse 18, is this is what makes it so astounding. This is the character of your God. This is the character of the God who would send Jesus to be crushed for your iniquities. 
It's dripping with the sweet honey of God's kindness. Because God raises up judges to woo and rescue, rescue Israel. And why does he do that? Look at verse 18. It says, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted them and oppressed them. Why does God rescue you again and again and again? Why does he save them again and again and again? Why does he continue to forgive over and over and over again and again? There's no reason, there's no rational reason for God to stay with his people apart from his pity, his mercy, his compassion. Some call this repentance, but it's not. It's just crying. Right? It's saying that when God's people cry, because circumstance, even our circumstances are causing us to, to weep, and even if they are due to our self-destructive decisions, as they so often are, the Lord is moved to pity, to come alongside you and rescue you. And this is what Ralph Davis says, God's heart is stirred by the sheer misery of his people. He is moved emotionally to see his people, even as sinful people, crushed. And once you see God's heart here, you can understand why the heart of God, when you see the priest Jesus, who stays faithful to people who are tempted by sin, over and over and over again. He says, if you would tumble in the abyss of divine mercy, you'll be convinced of this irrefutable fact. You cannot make up a God like this. This is unasked for salvation. God is faithful to his promise. I mean, it's echoes of Egypt. Israel was in Egypt groaning. God heard their cries and he came down and he brought the full fury of heaven and all of creation behind him. And what this generation has to learn is that the redemption of old can be theirs now. And that has to be taught again and again and again. And God remembers his covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He knows them. He sees their tears and he raises up a judge. He empowers them to rescue. And he does that 12 times, over and over and over again. Who is a God who would do that? Do you know any people like that? <laughs> to forgive unfaithfulness again and again and again and again? See, the reason they are left with the nations is so that they would learn they need God to rescue them just like their parents just like their grandparents. They need to learn dependent faith. And so God leaves the nations to teach them, to redeem each generation, praying for them to return, crying out for them to return. And in Judges, what's revealed, a test is not necessarily bad. Right? A test just shows you what's in the, on the inside, right? what you're actually able to do. A, a test, a basketball game is a test. Right? If you have two teams, you have on paper, you could have the worst team and the best team, but on any given day, the, the worst team could rise up to the occasion and surprise the, the, the best team at the buzzer. Right? And the coach can see what is in his players when he, they step onto the court and they are tested. 
And yet in Judges, the downward spiral of sin, as they are tested, shows that they cannot save themselves. And it's showing us we cannot save ourselves. Why do these problems remain? Because we have to learn, like God's people of old, to cry out for help. To learn to say, I cannot do this unless Jesus helps me. And I need him to be with me in it. So, put all that together, you have, you have a question. If we just ended here, if we only stayed in the text, it's pretty depressing. Because Judges ends with, there is no king in Israel and everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. And while the judges are alive, Israel doesn't respond. And when the judges die, they get worse. And so what the picture is by comparison, it's saying for what we need is more than rescue from our circumstances. We need rescue from our sinful and selfish hearts, our hearts that are prone to depend only on ourselves. And so we need a true and better judge sent and empowered by God who passes every test, but who doesn't just rescue us from our circumstances, but who also has the power to lead us to a deep and real repentance. To say, I'm sorry, I meant that, and I want you, Lord. Israel is semi-functional while the judge is alive, but every judge dies and they get worse. We need a judge who's still alive, who will not leave God's people alone. And that's who Jesus is for you. He is the true and better judge that passes every test. And the test of Jesus, it's really his obedience. What did it reveal? Every nook and cranny of his life as he was on earth. That he was moved to pity by the suffering of humanity. And in compassion, he moved towards them and he healed them. I mean, think of the widow of Nain. That's the exact pattern. She's lost her only son, Luke 7. Jesus looks at her, sees the weeping. He has compassion on her. And then he moves immediately into the sadness and raises the son from the dead. She didn't ask for it. Moved by compassion, Jesus moves towards her. He is God come in the flesh. And this Jesus loved God and his neighbor. That's what every test revealed, including Jesus' death on a cross. Two things. What does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that telling you about the heart of Jesus? He's being forsaken by God, taking the punishment we in Israel deserved for forsaking their God. And two, he's still pursuing God in in the darkness. He's crying out, my God, simply because he is faithful to the God of the covenant. See, God's mercy, by sending his son, by raising up a judge, and in sending the spirit to stay faithful even unto death on a cross, is showing you his bottomless love for you as a sinner and for his neighbor, or for for his God. And the good news is is he didn't stay dead. (laughs) God raised him up so he is free not to leave you alone. So when you wander, he will send his spirit to draw you back. He breaks the power 
of canceled sin. Because you are now bound in covenant to this Jesus who promises to never leave nor forsake you. And what it does is interrupt that cycle because you are now bound in chains to Jesus. That's Romans chapter 6. You are now slaves to righteousness. Now run after him because you have been enchained a steadfast love to that kind of mercy. And, and what it does is it changes your heart when you see someone love you that much, even to death on a cross. All right. So conclusion as we come to the table, we're all being tested in some way by something in this world. I don't know what it is, but part of what the test is designed to do in God's sovereignty is to, to draw you to the Jesus, to, to, to trust your king, to trust the true and better judge, to lean on him, to cry out in weakness, God, I can't do this unless you help me. That's the pattern of faith. And if you've sinned, you blow it, this is the dance that we do as Christians. We we look at the steadfast love of the Lord, his redemption on the cross, and we say, you're right, I failed. We own it, and then we get back up again and obey because we are still secure, we are still justified. And it's God's work of free grace that he is now taking us to be more and more into the image of our Savior. He, he undoes the downward spiral, and he's starting to recreate us to be more like Jesus. It's beautiful. It's amazing grace. And so as we come to the table, this, is, this too is a test. Will you lean in and trust what Jesus has done for you? Because it is, as he goes after the love of your heart, it's going to send you out then to say, I want to keep those commandments because look at how much he loves me. And so what we're going to do, we're going to go to war on our gospel amnesia as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's, let's pray and we'll do that together. Father, I pray as we, we did see the ugliness of the human heart, but we've also seen the beauty of what you have done in Christ. So teach us how to do this, Lord, to spend time at the foot of the cross as we repent just an awe and wonder that you would love a people like us. And then as we believe, help us remember we're justified, treated as if we had passed every test. And then out of, out of love for you, Father, out of love for Jesus, you would, by your spirit, make us heartily ready from now on, willing to live for him. So do that now as we come to the table in Jesus' name. Amen.